Let's open up with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful uh, for the opportunity to come together this morning as the body of Christ. Father, thank you for the edification we get from one another. Thank you for uh, the love that we share for you and for each other. Father, thank you for the, the ministry of the body in each of our lives. Uh, it's vital for us and we so need one another. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Ezekiel, uh, penned so long ago, but so uh, pertinent to what we think and how we live today. So pray that you would guide our discussion, that it might please you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're over in Ezekiel chapter 38, and today we're actually going to walk through some of the verses of this chapter. As you know, this uh, chapters 38 and 39 detail a war that happens uh, against the Israelites. I believe this is the war described in Revelation chapter 20 uh, after the thousand year reign. And if that's true, then as we come to this war, uh, Satan has been bound for a thousand years. And now he's been re-released and he is free to go and deceive the nations. And his deception of the nations is what leads to this uh, battle against Israel. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning as we look at um, how these forces come together and who's actually orchestrating what's going on here um, and, and why is this happening. Um, so we just begin by reading maybe again the first five verses of this chapter and then uh, we've talked about some of it so we'll just go through that quickly and then we'll begin to look in a little more detail. So Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all of your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Bethogomar from the remotest parts of the north, and all its troops, many peoples with you. So we see this large, really, um, force coming from all directions. Um, you have forces coming out of Africa that would be coming from the west and from the south. You have Persia, which is to the east, and then you have several nations to the north that are going to stream down into Israel, and they're all um, in battle array. They're ready for war. They've prepared themselves. We'll see in a minute that God tells them to get ready for the fight. But this is a fearful thing. And you'll notice, at least in the English translation, 
where it says, uh, talking about Gog, that the Lord is against him. So he's a human. He's an individual. Um, he's the leader of um, Tubal and Meshach. Um, that Rosh really means that he is the principal leader, that he's the chief of the chiefs, if you would, um, that he's in charge is what that really says. That's not three different lands, even though that's the way it's translated here. That means that he's the, the prince, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal is the better way to translate that. So we have this man who is orchestrating this attack, really, it will become against Israel. And we'll see how God unfolds this throughout this chapter and what the motives are and why he's doing this. But the first thing to notice is that um, God says in verse 4, and this is God talking through Ezekiel to Gog who won't exist for 3,000 years or so, at least 3,000, maybe 4,000 years. Um, so way distant into the future uh, that God is giving this message to Ezekiel to speak to the people, to write in this book, so it'll be recorded what's going to happen um, in, in the latter days or in the last years, as this passage will say. But he says, God speaking to God says, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army. So you start to have the question, is Gog free to do whatever he wants to do or is this God making Gog come against Israel and the answer to that is yes it's both of those things okay and we'll see that in a, in a minute that Gog has um, volitional will, uh, motives to go against Israel Yet, it's God, it's God who is orchestrating what's going on here. And you just kind of think, why, why after the millennium, why after the millennial kingdom, does God release Satan to deceive the nations again? And we get it in this chapter. Why? Because it's not just God doing what he wants to do, but it's Satan deceiving him that he could possibly overcome Jesus Christ who's seated in Jerusalem. That even though there's been a thousand years of peace and reign of Jesus Christ ruling the world with an iron rod, that now for some reason God thinks that he can overcome what's been in existence for a thousand years. And it's because of the deception of Satan that he thinks these things. So God is using Satan, he's using Gog, and he's using his uh, ordained will to accomplish what happens in these chapters. So this is something that pushes against us that I want to talk about in a couple of minutes. And we'll go to some other passages to see that this is not unique to just this war where God has ordained that things happen and yet men act out of their will and their volition to accomplish what God has ordained. Sometimes hard to frame in our minds, but nevertheless, that's what the scriptures teach. And I want to take you to a couple of places. 
and we'll look at that. Gog is not operating as the robot of God. God is not forcing him to do what he does here. God knows he's going to do this, but he is acting out of his own desires and his own volition to do these things. And I'll show you that the scripture explicitly says that um, about this. Now, well, we might as well go ahead and talk about this. Look over at Romans chapter 9. You go, how could it be that a man would act volitionally and yet God has ordained that what he does would happen? How, how could that possibly be true? And I, I like to use the answer that Paul gives in Romans chapter 9 because he, he addresses this very um, specific question as he comes to Romans 9. You know, I don't know if you know this chapter well. He gives multiple examples in here of how the will of God is done working through men and he gives several examples um, you'll I, I guess the the most prominent example that people really struggle with in this chapter is Jacob and Esau where God says before they were born God says Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated meaning God is going to favor Jacob and not favor Esau and Esau uh, eventually becomes the father of the Edomites who are a perpetual enemy against Israel all through history. Uh, still are today. Even though the Edomites don't exist as a people today, the land in which they settled, Mount Seir and that mountain range, which is mostly in Jordan these days, is still an enemy of Israel. So this has been true for millennial, and this is God saying, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And you remember this passage actually says, before they had done anything. So this is before any actions. While they're still in Rebecca's womb, God says that. And people really struggle with that. And then he goes on, and he uses um, another example where he's speaking to Moses and he says, I'll have mercy who on whom I'll have mercy and um, compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Meaning, if he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to show favor to anybody. And again, you struggle with that, right? Because this is the God of love. This is the God uh, who, of the, who created the, all the creation to worship him. And so then he goes to the most difficult of the examples, and he starts talking about Pharaoh. And if you go and read the story about Pharaoh, the scripture ten times says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart against him. So that's the action of God hardening a man's heart. Now, you'll also find in those passages, if you go and read it in detail, that Pharaoh multiple times hardened his own heart against God. So he, again, the, the ordination of God, what he's decreed will happen, and the will of men accomplishing what God has decreed. So they go, you know, read the question that Paul says, I know you're going to ask me in verse 19, well, in verse 18 of Romans chapter 9. So then he has mercy on whom he desires 
and he hardens whom he desires. This is what God does. And so Paul anticipates the question, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Why is it that God still finds fault with a man when it's God who hardens his heart against him? And so Paul answers that question with the best answer that he knows. He says, on the contrary, who are you, who are you O man, who answers back to God the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And he goes on, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And then he'll go on. So what's Paul saying here? Why, why is it that God hardens some and he doesn't harden others? Because he can. He's God. He's the creator. And that is not in violation of the will of men in any way. And yet people, some teach that it is. But you'll find, and this is really true in the Gospel of John, side by side you have men making decisions and acting volitionally and yet God decreeing what will happen. And those two things run parallel in Scripture. They never intersect one another. They never contradict one another. They're both true. And that's what's going on with God in Ezekiel 38. He is accomplishing the will of God without any doubt. God has decreed that this will happen. Yet, he's doing it because he wants to. He's acting out of his own will. And we'll see that explicitly stated in this passage. And so that's a hard question. And it's a hard thing to get your mind around. That God can decree that things will happen. And yet has ordered the creation and especially man in such a way that men volitionally accomplish the purposes of God. And that's been true throughout all the millennial. There's nothing new about this. It, Paul answered the question. He said, you don't have the right to question God about this. You're just the creation. You don't have the perspective that he has. And we don't have the right to question him about this. That's what Paul says in Romans 9. That's what that, the whole chapter is all about. That God can do whatever he well pleases because he is the creator. And, and, and men push against that because I can't be the captain of my own ship. I can't uh, pull myself up by my bootstraps, right? It's this, this desire to be in control when we're not in control. We often think we are and we try to be, but in no time are you in control. God's always in control. And, I mean, that's what it means to be God. And that's why humanity pushes against that so much. Because our pride and our will and our desire is to be in control. And you can't be. You're not going to be. And the sooner we understand that and recognize that, then the better off we are. 
then the more apt we are to accept what the scriptures teach. And that's why Paul wrote Romans chapter 9, was to explain this concept of the will of God is always accomplished. And he does directly intervene into mankind. Although we'd like to say, no, God just, uh, like the deists say, wound it up and now it's just unfolding however it happens. That's not true. That's what the deists would preach. But often we see God intervening, you know, into humanity. I mean, the scriptures clearly teach that God is the one who establishes authority. Although we think our elections and all of that is what accomplishes that, it just accomplishes the purpose of God. Because it's God who establishes the chain of authority. The scriptures clearly say, and he turns the hearts of kings, either good or bad. He, He can do either. And so, you know, you get into the Gospel of John and over in chapter 6 and Jesus' teaching says, no man can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Meaning there's no one out of their own volition who comes to God just because they want to. It has to be granted by the Father for that to happen. And it has to be your, your, your eyes must be illumined to who Jesus Christ is, and that's not something you can do for yourself. That's something that God does, although that's not what most of the church teaches. But Jesus says it clearly in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. Makes it extremely clear that no man comes to me except for it be given him by the Father. And then all that do come to him, he accepts. And he'll lift them up on the last day. You know those passages. And people avoid those passages. (laughs) Because they they teach something they don't like. Um, But you can't do that. You can't pick and choose which scriptures you're going to teach. So back over to Ezekiel in chapter 7. And that's verse 4. Where God says, I'll put hooks in his jaws and turn him around so that he'll come against Israel. Now, that forcible turning around could very well um, be God, um, you know, simply not granting for God to understand what's going on. It could be God using Satan to deceive God. You don't know. But you know this, that God is the one orchestrating what's going on here. And that's sometimes hard to accept. But nevertheless, that's what the scriptures teach, so you must accept it. So I'll let you wrestle with that in your own minds. And, and that's, a, that's a hard doctrine. I would never say it's simple and easy to understand. Never. Because it's not. But nevertheless, that doesn't make it untrue. Now, we've seen these countries. Um, down in verse 5, he begins to name them Persia, Ethiopia, and Put. Join their forces with Gog. Uh, today... Um, or even in the scriptures, instead of using put, you would use the name Cush, which um, basically speaks of Ethiopia. Um, so you got the land just south of Egypt and um, continuing on down into Africa is who he's talking about here. They will come up um, and come across against Israel, joining with the forces of God. So you've basically got an attack from all sides. 
And of course, if you go much to the west of Israel, you're in the water. So you can't run that way, that's for sure, um, because you run into the Mediterranean Sea. So um, basically, Israel is surrounded by these countries that are going to call uh, come against them. And you'll notice in verse 7, God calls for Gog to prepare himself for war, basically. Ready yourself. Get ready. Get all your armaments together. Get all your people together and have your plan of attack because there is going to be a war. And this is a war, if you look at it, just if you, if you lived in that day and age, you would say, okay, who initiates this war? And you would say Gog and his forces because they're the ones who come against Israel. Israel's just sitting there, has been sitting there for a thousand years, I believe. And they've been living securely in their land. So I want to look at some of the description that's given here and why is it you know, we, we spent two weeks or three weeks going through why is it that I believe this happens at the end of the millennial reign? And there's some descriptions here that I think say just that. You know, I could be wrong. You always understand that, right? I mean, I never claim to be right in everything. But I try to be logical and I try to put together this piece of scripture with the rest of scripture. And from that, you can gain understanding. You can't take something in isolation and come up with your own conclusions and it oppose what else is in Scripture. That would clearly be wrong to do that because Scripture never contradicts itself even though the world thinks it does. It never does. So God says in verse 7, Be prepared and prepare yourself and all your companies that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. I mean, you're the one who's in control so be ready to say, attack. All right, so that's what God is advising um, Gog to do. And then notice in verse 8, it's the only time frame reference in this passage where he says, after many days, you will be summoned. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword. All right, now, Latter years is that phrase is not used anywhere else in the Old Testament scripture. Nowhere else. This is the only place. You will find last days a couple of times. But they always, based on my looking, without exclusion, refer to the reign of Jesus Christ. Always. In the Old Testament. You'll find it many times in the New Testament where they're looking for the return of Jesus Christ, and they'll say, use the term last days. But in the Old Testament, it always speaks of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And you can go to several passages. You can go back into Isaiah. It's once in Jeremiah. It's here in Ezekiel. Uh, you'll find it in some of the minor prophets. I believe it's in Micah, and it's in Zechariah. And it always refers to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ because it talks about him reigning on the mountains. And that's the millennial reign. So that doesn't help you a whole lot. And so you have to determine after many days, okay, many, that means there's a starting point somewhere, right? 
Because starting here, after many days, you get to um, what's going to get ready to happen. So I, you think. I think that Ezekiel wrote chronologically. We know that's true for the first 33 chapters because all through those chapters he gives time frame references and he's moving into the future as he goes. Ultimately, until in chapter 33, he gets word that Jerusalem has been destroyed. And then that part of Ezekiel stops. And then he jumps to what we've been looking at starting in chapter 34 up to where through 37 where he describes how the millennial reign initiates. And if you look back in chapter 37, we spent several weeks there. Remember, there's three specific prophecies. There's the Valley of Dry Bones. There's the reunification of Israel and Judah. And there's the establishment of the Davidic throne with Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of David. And so those are the three things in 37 that lead into 38. And I believe this is chronological. So I believe between 37 and 38 in the white spaces, there's a thousand years. Because it's just the peaceful reign of Jesus Christ. Now, 38 and 39 end all the activity that happens in Ezekiel. Chapters 40 through 48 are a description of several things, of the worship during the millennial reign, of what the temple looks like during the millennial reign, and who lives in what land during the millennial reign. But there's no activity. There's no action. It's just a description of what the millennial kingdom looks like. So I believe that chapter 1 through chapter 38 of Eze 39 of Ezekiel are chronological in their order. And that's the way Ezekiel has been writing, so I think that's the way he continues to write. So when we come to chapter 39, when he says, after many days, I believe that means after many days when the millennial kingdom was established. Because that's the last thing of chapter 37, is the, uh, the establishment of the throne of Jesus Christ. So after a thousand years would qualify as many days, I think, right? 365 times a thousand, that's a lot of days. And so I think that qualifies as after many days. And so I think that's when this is, is at the end of the millennial reign. And that fits with when he says, after many days you will be summoned. Now it's interesting that God again says, um, while he's getting ready to describe that Gog is working out his own will, that he says, I'm going to summon you. That's the putting the hooks in the jaws. That I'm going to have Satan deceive you to such a degree that you think that you can come against Israel and defeat them. And here's why. Look at what it says in verse 8. The land of Israel that is restored from the sword, been, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. All of those phrases to describe the nation of Israel are given in the previous chapters. When God says, I'm bringing you back, I'll heal the... Uh, 
the sick. I'll men bind up the broken. I'll put you on the mountains. You'll dwell in green pastures. All of those things uh, that you were a wasteland, but the wastelands have been rebuilt. Um, that you live securely in your land, even though the cities have no walls around them. They have no gates, no bars, and yet they live securely in their land because no one dares come against their king who sits in Jerusalem because he rules the whole world. And so they live securely in their land and we'll see a little bit later down that he says, this is God thinking, their cities don't have walls. This is going to be a, an easy, easy battle. They have no fortification whatsoever. Matter of fact, they have no weapons because they've been living in peace for a thousand years. And so they are unguarded, so God thinks. And so we'll see as we go on down that that's the way he begins to think. Now, look on down with me. We'll go ahead and read that today and then probably have to stop, yeah, once we get through this. All right, so starting in verse 9, he, God says, You will come up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. This is all those nations, right? All of them sending their armies against tiny Israel, which is full of people. Remember that it's going to be like the festivals for the thousand years. It's going to be packed with people living in cities with no walls, with no guard at all. And so thus the Lord says to God, Thus the Lord God says, It will come about on that day, that day of when the battle starts, that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. So who's, who is he talking to? This is God, right? And God, said, God says, Yes, I'm going to turn you about with hooks in your jaws, but you're going to devise evil plans in your own mind. This is the will of God. This is what he's thinking. This is what will come into his mind as he's deceived by the evil one who's been released to deceive him for the very specific purpose of deceiving him. And he says, These, you will devise an evil plan and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them, without, living without walls and having no bars or gates. This is the exact description that God previously gave in Ezekiel of what the millennial kingdom looks like. No walls, no bars, people living securely, not worrying about any attack whatsoever. This is the description that Ezekiel has previously given about what Israel looks like. So, if Israel in the millennial kingdom looks like that, and that's how God sees them, then this must be after the millennial reign. Right? Otherwise, he wouldn't see them living securely in their cities without any walls. You go to Jerusalem today, and it's certainly on guard against attack. 
and they don't live in any security at all. They fear attack. That will always be true until the millennial reign. And then they won't have any walls around their cities. And they'll not worry about any attack. So that could only... I could be wrong, but to me, the scripture clearly says this is after the millennial reign. Because otherwise, God would not see this description of Israel. Because it's never been true in history. And it's not true today. And I doubt it will ever be true when there's so many enemies against Israel until the millennial reign. But I could be wrong. Okay, and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places, which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. This is God speaking through Ezekiel to Gog. And God says, this land is what? The center of the world. So from God's perspective, the nation of Israel is the center of the world. Because all these lands around them are the ones who are coming against them. It's always been the center of the world from God's perspective. You remember as he was bringing them back into the land that he is jealous for. That he calls my land. Even though he's given it to the patriarchs. Over and over and over again, you see that description in Ezekiel, that I'm jealous for this land that's at the center of the world. And that's God speaking. So I'm not, you know, when we talk about the end and the, um, you get it over in the Revelation, you talk about the battles and you have all these theories about Europe and all that crazy stuff. Israel is the center of the world. Just keep that in mind when you read through all those theories that God says Israel is the center, not Europe. So just take that for what it's worth. So you see here very clearly that Gog recognizes what Israel looks like. And you know, these descriptions that he says that you've been brought into your land, that you have no walls, that you have many cattle and um, livestock. Those are descriptions of what God said Israel was going to look like during the millennial reign. In those four chapters, 34 through 37. It, this is how he's described it. These are the exact same phrases that he's used to describe the millennial kingdom. So it, it, it can't be coincidental that he describes it in this way. Even the waste places being rebuilt. You remember those, those statements that we looked at over and over? That's why I emphasized them so much because I knew chapter 37 was coming. And so this, these are the descriptions of the millennial kingdom. And God recognizes it. He recognizes, I believe, that Jesus Christ is reigning over them. Because you, it'd be unmistakable why do they live in secu securely in their land? Because they have someone who's protecting them. That's why. 
And so God recognizes the political, we would call it religious system that's established in Israel where God is reigning and yet he's deceived to believe that he can easily go in and take them. That we'll plunder them, we'll seize them, they have no walls, they can't protect themselves, we'll just walk in there and take it. And in a little while we'll see the merchants that come from far away say, are you going to go in and plunder them? So everybody sees that this is his plan. So there's nothing hidden here. This is out in the open, and yet Israel still sits in Israel, securely living in their land. All the way up to the attack. So we'll have to talk about that when the invading forces actually come. How does this work out? when they don't have any walls around their cities. I mean, surely these guys could just walk in. Not so much. Not so much. And we'll see that as this war unfolds. But I, I think this, this shows you very clearly that while God is orchestrating, God is working out his own volition. He's doing what he desires to do. He's formulating plans of how the attack will go. So in no way is he acting as the robot of God doing the will of God without him himself participating. This is the uniqueness of humans, right? That we have a will. We have a volition. We're made in the image of God. We do things that we desire to do. Although we're fallen because of the original sin, yet much of what was originally designed still goes on. It just goes on for evil instead of for good. So Gog is not a robot. He isn't simply deceived by Satan so he doesn't think about anything. He's just going to go in there and do the will of Satan. He is the one devising the evil plans. Now I do believe Satan's involved and has deceived him that he can accomplish this. But is Gog, God says him, so man who is leading these forces, who thinks he can accomplish what he desires to do. He'll be sadly mistaken. And we'll begin to look at that next time when we come together. So my plan is next week to finish out chapter 38 and begin into chapter 39. And then the next week, if the Lord wills and he tarries, to finish chapter 39. And then we'll have to figure out how we're going to address chapter 40 which is a man with a measuring rod and 10,000 measurements. So we'll have to figure out. We're probably not going to spend a whole lot of time there. Okay? Maybe one of you could draw what he pictures there. There have been several artists who did that, that and it looks pretty cool. Okay, so that's all we got for today. Thanks for your time.